All right. I think we are ready to begin. I know that Kelly has a lot to say, so I'm going to announce his title, which I'm sure he remembers, Developing Ethics and Good Practice in Member Care. I give you Kelly O'Donnell. Kelly. Right. How is the mic? Can you hear me? Is it working? It's working. So you're still here with us. You haven't gone away. The folks from Houston, where are you? I know you're somewhere. OK, great. Azusa Pacific folks here, Rosemead, et cetera. OK, fantastic. APU. OK, we're in the third of our three lectures during the symposium. First one, as you recall, dealt with staying healthy in difficult places, looking at the history of member care, some highlights, listening to our global voices, what's going on out there in Africa a bit, Asia, and so forth. Third aspect of the first lecture had to do with future directions, envisioning where we can go in the member care field to support humanity in need. Uh, before lunch, we looked at the second area of the lecture series, and that had to do with staying healthy and difficult, sorry, that had to do with promoting health and mission and aid and managing dysfunction. This third topic is something which is also very near and dear to my heart. As many of us in the member care field, which is interdisciplinary, which is cross-cultural, as we've struggled to try to find some principles that can be relevant for us in light of our diversity of backgrounds, disciplines, and so forth, what are some of the guiding principles that we could call upon to help us determine whether something would be considered good practice or not good practice, ethical or non-ethical? So what I want to do uh, this afternoon is look at a structure for going about what would be considered to be ethical for our sending agencies as well as for ourselves as practitioners. Something which I would hope would be gravitating towards a transcultural approach. Now, I'm not claiming it's transcultural. I'm just saying, can we head in this direction towards a transcultural approach to doing ethics? In, mission, in member care contexts. So we will be looking at both some of the perils of doing uh, member care responsibly and ethically, and then some of the pearls, some of the good examples, some of the things that make sense. A second part of today will deal with human rights. Human rights is an area which is not really touched upon so much in the member care literature or in member care practice. And it's something which I hope we can uh, further introduce into our thinking both philosophically and practically in terms of human rights instruments, especially the 1948 document, the United Nations Declaration for Human Rights. So where are we going in the next 15 minutes or so? We're going solidly in the area of good practice, ethical care, looking at some tr hopefully transcultural-ish uh, principles, framework, and then looking at what human rights has to do with our ethical member care practice. Does anyone happen to know, curious, where these statues are from? Apart from Michelle. The second largest United Nations headquarters is in Geneva. And across the street from the Geneva compound complex is the Museum for the International Red Cross. And as you walk through the front doors, this is what confronts you. Statues of human beings who were bound, ganged, 
gagged and blinded, representing, pretty obviously, the violation of the human rights, violation of who they are as humans, and a constant reminder of what we're faced against as we try to progress as humans in a more civilized, ethical manner, human rights manner. This star is glaring at us, and the sun just happened to be shining in the right way. And it reminded me that that's what we're trying to do here today. That's what we're trying to do in member care and ethics. Shine a light on what's really there. What's the good practice? What's the poor practice? Even as what we said before earlier in the second lecture, shining a light on reality. Let's look at our relational reality. Let's look at our ethical reality and some of the challenges we have and some of the successes, too, on this topic. So we want to overview ethical codes and principles that are relevant for the practice of member care and mission and aid. We want to explore the foundational role of human rights for supporting workers and for supporting the people that we provide services to, that is, humanity in need. And then, hopefully, you will come out of here being able to identify a main ethics code and a related code that you can further apply to your life and work. We'll go over some different codes and different standards. So I'll spend a little time initially talking about ethics. Then we'll identify four stones or four sets of guidelines. First one for member care workers. MCW represents member care workers. Second code for senders. Third has to do with rationalizations. It's a way of holding up a mirror to ourselves and to our organizations to look squarely at how are we doing? Have we lapsed into substandards and ethical violations? What's going on for us? So it's not just a code, but it's a process of looking honestly at how we're doing in an ethical sense. Then we'll look a little bit about the need, look a little bit, the need for specific codes. And then the final area, Stone 5, focuses on the area of human rights. And as I mentioned before, this is something which you will not see in the literature, except in one article in Member Care that I know of by Wilfred Wong, who is a human rights advocate and connected with the Member of Parliament in the United Kingdom. He has an article in Doing Member Care Well. 2002 on human rights advocacy in mission. Where are we going? Bit of a heads up, because I'm really wanting to spend time talking about human rights. I don't know how much I'm going to get into it, but I want you to know that I've come to really believe and to esteem this particular phrase, which comes from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as well as other sources. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. That applies to our staff. It applies to people that we work with. People are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Now, we all might say, well, this is, this is a no-brainer. We all know this. You know, we could probably recite it in a few different languages in our sleep. But it's not always practice as we relate to our staff and care for our staff, our expendable staff, perhaps, and the people that we serve. So we'll get more into this, but this is where we're going, trying to establish and further understand what this looks like in a member care context. So the premise here, the stimulus for getting into this lecture is pretty much this. As our field of member care continues to grow, it's important to offer guidelines to further clarify and shape good practice. Any guidelines must carefully consider the fact of the field's international diversity and blend together the best interests of both service receivers and service providers. These guidelines also need to be applicable to member care workers with different types of training and experience. Now, what a task that is. Are we asking the impossible? We might be. But let's have a go at it and see what we can do. Ethical. The way I see it, I'm defining it as meaning in accordance with recognized guidelines which promote 
responsible care and promote good practice. These guidelines deal with areas like confidentiality, skill competencies, continuing growth, accountability, sensitivity to human diversity, organizational responsibility for staff care. Now again, here in the, the, the oasis of Southern California, Fuller, Rosemead, APU, mental health practice, professionalism, again, I, in many ways, this is a no-brainer. I mean, it's challenging sometimes to certainly apply. But I want you to know that in the member care world, a lot of which has developed in a non-professional context, and people sort of making up good practice as they go along, not often with the academic backgrounds and sequential training that all of us have, or a lot of us have. This stuff, these are some new words. These are some new concepts. And people don't fully understand why that would even be relevant. These core commitments, this movement towards a transcultural framework is based on beneficence and non-maleficence. In other words, intentionally seeking to do good as we provide our services and the desire to do no harm within one sphere of practice and influence. I added the word influence because I believe this extends to lifestyle and not just, say, professional practice. Everything we do relates to this. So we try to, it's the Hippocratic Oath, essentially. And you see this in the opening comments in the APA's current ethical principles for psychologists and code of conduct. Here's five premises that guide our thinking about member care in the ethical area. First, we see our staff and we encourage people to see staff as humans with intrinsic worth and not just as resources with strategic worth. We appreciate staff for who they are as well as for what they do. Again, I use the phrase no-brainer, but it's not out there. And as um, we talked about earlier today, the expendable nature of our workers, perhaps for the sake of a higher good, a higher goal, which is eternal life and eternal things, finding a balance for that. When you read the Code of Good Practice, which I'll get into a little later, by the People in Aid organization, they very much focus more as a secular group on our staff or resources with strategic worth, and that's why we support them. And I think that's incomplete and inadequate, biblically speaking. It's both intrinsic worth and strategic worth. Second premise, which guides our ethical endeavors, ethical care is concerned with both the well-being of everyone involved in mission and aid. That includes the well-being of the organization, its purposes, and its personnel. So we're just not committed to staff, but we're committed to the purposes of an organization. We want organizations to be successful. I do not want to be typecast as someone who's just an advocate for staff, but perhaps a term which I heard from Brent Lindquist years ago, uh, the role of an ombudsman, or ombudsperson, if that is such a word, where we are interested in both and, and stand between staff as, as links and organizational goals and issues, trying to bring both together. A third area has to do with an appreciation for sacrifice and suffering, seeing those as normal parts of mission and aid work. The fact that someone is really struggling or that there's negative consequences as a result of their commitment to Christ, serving cross-culturally, it's expected. Don't freak out. Doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong or the organization isn't caring for them adequately. This is what we signed up for. Sacrifice, struggle, even death. That could be very normal. We don't freak out when that happens. We acknowledge it, try to mitigate against the serious negative consequences that accompany work in risky places. Fourth area, we encourage balancing the demands of professional work with the desires for personal growth. Personnel need to find a good work-life balance so they can both 
run well, work well, and then rest well, connect with supportive resources. So it's a value, it's a give and a take, it's both and in terms of demands as well as needs for supportive resources. And then finally, how, and this is the ethical question, how do we provide services? How we provide our services to staff is as significant as the actual services themselves. We respect the dignity and rights of all people and thus we provide quality care carefully. And that's probably the key phrase, one of the key phrases in this presentation. What does it mean to provide quality care carefully? And how do we reinforce that? How do we, if you please, police that or hold people accountable to provide quality care in such a diverse and broad field? Here's a couple quick cases just to set the tone a bit more. For example, in the area of competence, an experienced consultant makes recommendations to a humanitarian organization based in Asia. The consultant is addressing the care of their, of their emergency staff working in a mass disaster area, rampant with cholera and malaria. The consultant is vaguely familiar with that cultural context and vaguely familiar with the organization itself. To what extent does the consultant need to inform the questions, need to inform the agency about limitations in his or her background? When is it okay to, quote, stretch beyond one's areas of training and experience? What if no one else is readily available to offer advice? So, is this consultant acting competently and ethically? That's a good question. I'm in this position periodically, maybe you are too, wherever you practice. The reality of being stretched and who is really available to help when need comes knocking. Here's a second area, confidentiality. I see this all the time, something like this. A compassionate leader informally exchanges a few emails with a man in their organization, part of the same organization, man has marital struggles. The man tells the leader that he and his wife have frequent fights that can be overheard by African neighbors. He is also drinking a local alcoholic beverage most nights. Later, the leader prays with his own wife about the other couple's struggles. Do you see what's going on here? As a Western or United States trained therapist, counselor, helper, what's wrong here? Or is there anything wrong here? That's right. I heard one person say in a similar context, well, my wife and I are one flesh biblically, and that takes a higher priority to any ethical code. I need her support. Therefore, I hold the privilege, essentially, is what this person was saying. Sorry, what? Is that right? OK, they're in trouble. You don't want to mess with Arnold. I want to be my bodyguard. So is it okay for one's spouse to know such things? Is the disclosure of, quote, significant problems protected information? Would asking the leader to not share be secretive? So what type of confidentiality is appropriate in some of these settings in which we work? It's a good question. What if something could potentially damage the witness and reputation of an organization, such as you find out about embezzlement or moral failure? What is your responsibility as the helper to inform and to protect the organization and the witness of Christ in that area, region. Okay, a third area, organizational responsibility. Again, this, this can happen. A reputable sending organization shortens a family's field preparation from three months to one month. The reason is so that the husband, a medical doctor, can cover a crucial and vacant position in a refugee clinic in the Middle East. That needs are so great. Cut corners a bit. Everyone has to do that. That's reality. However, to what extent does making such, quote, adjustments simply reflect the realities of mission and aid work? What if, quote, lives or a large funding grant are at stake? 
So to what extent is the organization acting responsibly towards the family and towards the refugee patients? It's an ethical question. What if lives are at stake? Okay, I don't want to get into the answers here, but just a bit of a taste. A few more things. Assessing physical and mental disabilities during selection, including those of kids. So one of the issues could be whether hiring, locating, or promoting staff is based on such disabilities. Another area, determining who has access to personnel files. One application, what about team leaders? Should they have access to team members' personnel files, especially if there's negative information? What if someone has struggled with an addiction, a pornography addiction? Should the team leader on the field know about that? Or is that a violation of some ethical code or even legal requirement? Working in stressful settings with limited supervision, contingency plans, and personal debriefing. Can we send our people out into areas where they're going to be at risk without some of these supportive services? Isolated settings and or with extreme stressors. Sending people in Afghanistan to do humanitarian aid work, can we do that? And if so, what are our responsibilities to brief them before they go, to support them on the field, crisis care, and then to debrief them? Another area, consulting with people with whom one has many types of social and work relationships, multiple relationships. Huge, happens all the time in the mission context. And I mean, my basic thought, if I could just jump in here, is I like to make it work for us, for me. I see it as a positive thing, but with some potential snares, of course. So for example, should we be doing conflict mediation for an interagency group that includes folks from your agency who know you and who might know others? Then finally, confronting the unhealthy and harmful practices of leaders and other staff. How do we protect staff that point out problems or whether certain lifestyle choices are private affairs, such as smoking, drinking, one's sexuality as a, um, as a worker or as a single, and so forth. These are issues which have legal implications and ethical implications and a lot of diverse thinking, sometimes theologically as well as legally and ethically. Here's a little grid that helps guide my way through the maze of ethical issues. This is a continuum that represents Christ's relationship with us, with people. On, one, on the far end, on the left, here, we see Christ, uh, which he's not, is sort of like a coddler, he placates, kind of represents worse practice. He teaches, would treat us like a kid, which is not the way he does things. And then on the far right, Christ is the condemner, the punisher, evidence of worse practice. So how did Christ really relate to us? And how should we relate to our staff and our workers? The area in the gold here represents the dual type of approach in Christ's relationship with us. He comforts us for sure. He gives us peace, but he also challenges us. He also kicks us. And uh, likewise, we do the same with our staff. I put this little grid together, some input from Michelle, my wife, because sometimes mission leaders misconstrued what member care was about. It was all very much the comfort, Christ the peacemaker. You're going to make our workers soft. They'll be more vulnerable, less effective. And you see that in many cases in terms of the mentality. But if we point out the other side of Christ, where he challenges people, rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith, pushes them out into areas that stretch them, then I think we see a more balanced view of member care and open up to the possibility, a greater possibility of sacrifice, suffering, and being stretched, which is part of the job description for mission personnel. Ethics is a mentality. So 
as we're approaching upgrading member care and thinking transculturally, one of the additional things that is a core point is that it's not just a code we're developing. It's just not a set of guidelines we're developing, but it's a way of thinking. And you can only get that through hard experience, through case studies, through supervision. You can't get it necessarily in a book. And so we need to help people develop the life experience and the uh, member care experience where we deal with hard ethical issues and so forth. Ethical member care involves more than simply identifying the right general ethical guidelines and then trying to apply them in appropriate situation-specific ways. Rather, it is fundamentally a way of thinking through problems, our practices, and the possible consequences of our actions. It is a mentality. It is a mentality which, is, in my experience, is still lacking in much of the mainstream member care community. So it's not a question of morality, but rather it's a reflection of the need to develop a pervasive mindset for ethics over time through training, experience, and reviewing various scenarios with others. Three books which do help, in addition to our life experience, Culture and the Clinical Encounter. This was written in a medical context. They have a number of uh, Rita Gropper, I believe is her name, the author, a number of what she calls ethical sensitizers. One-page little scenarios with three or four possible choices. And you have to guess what the proper ethical response would be in these ambiguous, multicultural context healthcare setting. And fortunately, at the back of the book, they have the answers. So you can go back and see why the responses were good or not good. Another book is uh, Outside on Sale, Fuller Bookstore, Ethics in um, Plain English. And this takes the APA Code of Ethics 2002 and brilliant lots of case studies and examples, which I think many of us are familiar with. And then another one from the APA Trust, the uh, liability insurance company associated with APA, assessing and managing risk in psychological practice. Lots of stuff on ethics. Another one that was very practical, uh, especially relevant to marriage and family therapists, was the special issue in the Psychotherapy Networker, March 2003. Brilliant. All right. Let me just move on because of the interest of time, sorry. You'll get this in the article. Another example of just why ethics is relevant, point towards truth. So there's a lot of professional ethic codes, ethical codes that exist. Some of us can relate to them, related to member care. For some, they're a good fit. But one size, of course, does not fit all. For example, as a psychologist and as an international affiliate of the APA, I go by the APA principles and code of conduct. But what about a skilled Nigerian pastor, for example, who provides trauma training care in Sudan? They're probably not going to find the APA code so helpful or relevant. Such ethical codes are primar primarily relevant for the disciplines and countries in which they were intended. But as I said earlier, many M MCWs, member care workers, enter the member care field through a combination of their life experiences and informal training. They're not part of a professional association with a written ethics code. However, common sense and one's moral convic uh, convictions only go so far in terms of the ethical challenges that these people have. So on the one hand, we don't want to impose our ethical standards on them, but on the other hand, they need some, we all need some guidelines and some recognized ways to help guide our decisions. So there's a bit of a challenge here. Appealing to another country or discipline, discipline's ethical code can result in a rather cumbersome mismatch between the person and the code. This mismatch is akin to the story of David, if you remember this, how he was outfitted in Saul's armor as he prepared to fight Goliath. The armor was far too cumbersome for his smaller body size, and hence it would likely be more of a liability than an asset in battle. 
He clearly needed the more familiar, custom-fitted arms that fit his frame and fighting strategy. And as scripture said, that included his staff, his sling, along with five carefully selected smooth stones. So it is this phrase that I want to look at and help shape the rest of our discussion lecture. Uh, five carefully selected smooth stones, these transcultural framework, these five areas that we're looking at. We have to identify relevant ethical guidelines that fit into our cultural and experiential slings, metaphorically speaking. In other words, MCWs and sending groups must choose stones which can further shape their ethical mentality and guide their praxis. I like to think of each stone in the platonic sense of representing an ideal and the guidelines that follow that stem from each stone in the Aristotelian sense of being the particulars. So we might not all agree on the particulars, but I hope that we can identify, uh, that we can agree with, agree upon the need for a framework or five broad stones at the very least. So we'll get more into that. Please remember these are guidelines, not in fact made of stone, but they reflect the aspirations of the stone's ideals. The guidelines that we're about to go over, these five areas, they're malleable. They can be carefully shaped to fit one's culture, discipline, and organization. So what might some of these stones look like? Here's five stones. First one, good practice commitments for member care workers. There's 15 that a number of us have developed consensually over the last few years. Second area has to do with good practice principles for senders. So first one is member care workers focused. Next one is for sending groups, churches, agencies. Third, the mirror that I mentioned, substandards for poor practice. Fourth, what specific code for good practice might a person want to find and connect with in addition to the previous ones? And then fifth, the area of human rights principles and actually moral law, which we'll see. Okay, these five stones are undergirded by our commitments to do good while doing no harm. We wanna provide quality services. They want these uh, standards help us to provide quality services by memory care workers and senders. They help us to, in our ongoing development as senders and member care workers, they inform others who are using or providing member care services. They, they help them understand what it means to do member care well and what we should expect appropriately of the people that we entrust our staff with, for example. And then finally, we protect service receivers via safeguards. So these are some of the purposes why we need codes, why we need standards, and let's have a look at some of these five stones now. So we're entering into part two of the presentation. The first one was more of an overview of member care, a few thoughts, general principles. And now we're gonna uh, shine a light on these five stones and what's going on somewhere out there. Stone one deals with, it's a generic set of guidelines for all types of member care workers. The specific example given is 15 basic guidelines in the form of commitments. So it focuses on the types of characteristics we have as people, our backgrounds and relationships to practice member care well. It's also a bit relevant for sending groups that solicit and receive member care worker services and so on. Okay. First one is uh, ongoing training, personal growth, and self-care. That is, member care workers need to be committed to these things to be able to demonstrate that we're building this into our life and that we have these as safeguards. We're trying to grow as humans and we're trying to provide self-care. Second, ongoing accountability for personal areas and member care ministry. So who are we accountable to, who's speaking into our lives, and so forth. Third area, commitment to doing no harm and having high standards in my services, not just trying to get by, 
but um, pushing ourselves to do our best. Fourth, recognizing the strengths and limits in myself, skills, and services. So being self-aware, aware of our competencies, aware of our shortcomings, and so forth. Fifth, understanding and respecting the felt needs of those with whom I work. The felt needs. It's just not what I can provide or what I think you need, but really endeavoring to scratch where it itches based on the client's needs. Okay. Sixth, working with other colleagues and making referrals when needed. We don't do it on our own. We work with other colleagues. We get help when we need it. Consulting and getting supervision as needed and regularly. Representing my skills and background accurately. Preventing problems as well as offering supportive and restorative services. So we're interesting in the proactive approach and not just putting out fires, but preventing fires from starting too. 10, having cultural and organizational sensitivity and respecting diversity. Not all organizations are the same, of course. How they do things we need to understand and get oriented to before we stick our heads in that system. Not imposing my disciplinary or regulatory norms on other member care workers. Very important. We're all very different. Serving as a link or mediator between staff and organizations when needed. Abiding by legal requirements for offering member care in a given country. It's quite a challenge, especially if you cross geographical borders on the internet. What does that look like? Practicing member care ethically based on, a specific, on specific ethical guidelines. And then finally, growing in my relationship to Christ, the best practitioner. Now, in the ideal world, we'd have time to take a couple of these to talk about further. The main point I want to convey, whether you fully or agree with or endorsing these, is that there is some need to put something out there that people from various backgrounds can identify with and say, yes, I want to embrace these. These are commitments I want to make and take seriously. I want to be held accountable for these. Uh, this little video represents uh, the first one, which has to do with self-care. And by the way, and broadly speaking, if I can just throw out an opinion here, <laughs> another one, the area of physical health is often neglected among mission personnel. Things can be very spiritual, and as the member care field has developed, there's been a lot of emphasis on mental health and uh, stress management, which is very important. But taking care of our bodies, our temples of the Holy Spirit, are very key also. Did you hear the last little thing? Protecting your purchases. There's a method in my mind this. We want to protect our investment in our workers. And if self-care also includes things beyond stress management, such as physical care, taking those malaria tablets, making sure there's a seatbelt in your car, and so forth, then we should really help protect our investment in our workers, our resources. OK. Um, I'm going to move through this. But the basic thought here is we ex uh, can talk about stone one has to do with the importance of developing character, virtue, competence, that's like skills, and compassion, a motivation of love in all that we do. This is in the paper, okay, so you will get it. Stone two, principles for senders, um, focuses on the crucial role of sending groups to responsibly support and manage their staff well. Will you please remember that phrase, responsibly support and manage, okay? That's one of the things I hope you take away from here in this symposium. It's not just about psychosocial support. It's about good management and good practice and, and good governance that we need to put together for our staff. It's both and. So what are Sender's responsibilities? It looks at the big picture of member care from recruitment through retirement. 
not just at any one stage in the life cycle of workers. The uh, international model of member care and doing member care well refers to sending groups as the, quote, sustainers of member care. Uh, senders demonstrate their commitment to member care and to their staff by the way they invest themselves and their resources, including finances, into staff care. Sending groups aspire to have a comprehensive, culturally relevant, and sustainable approach to member care, including a commitment to organizational <coughs> development. Sending groups do well to offer quality services for staff and to expect quality services from staff. It is a two-way street. It's not all what I'm going to get as a, as a staff or personnel, pers a person, um, but it's my responsibility to give quality services and, to and also expecting to receive quality services from the organization. Um, some of you probably received this, I hope, in your packets or are aware of this. This is for free online in a few different languages. This is what I personally use and suggest transculturally in general. Seven core principles from this code that was developed in 1993 that deal with the responsibilities of sending groups in the humanitarian area, but also it applies to uh, Christian mission. Principle one deals with human resources strategy. Human resources are an integral part of our uh, strategic and operational plans. The organization allocates sufficient human and financial resources to achieve the objectives of the human resources strategy. Now, all of these might sound like good words and ideals, but the wonderful thing about this particular code, apart from the fact that it's consensually derived with Christian input from Christian organizations like Cheer Fund, World Vision, is that it gives you key indicators, behavioral criteria to assess to what extent you're putting these lofty principles and ideals into practice. So for each of these seven principles, we don't have time to go into it, for each of these seven principles, there's maybe three to seven criteria to look at to what extent your organization is putting this into practice. I find that very helpful. And there's also case studies. So I've read this and reread it and encouraged others to read it many, many times. Uh, principle two, staff policies and practices. Our human resources policies aim to be effective, fair, and transparent. Policies and practices that relate to staff employment are in writing, monitored, and reviewed. Staff are familiarized uh, with policies and practices that affect them. Okay, because of time, I just want to breeze through just the, the first line, I think, of each of the other ones. Principle three deals with managing people and helping our managers, supporting them and their management of people well. Uh, principle four deals with consultation and communication. When we uh, put any policy or make any decision as an organization that affects the well-being of our staff, then we need to get consultation with them and communicate that with them. Principle five deals with recruitment and selection. How do we do recruitment? How do we accurately... Uh, describe what we're doing, risks that are involved, how do we select people, making sure it's fair, transparent, and so forth. Six, learning, training, and development in our commitment to help our people grow, and ongoing training, lifelong learning, things like that. Is Janneke here? Or anyone who speaks Dutch? Zeker Delta Lloyd? Anyone know what that means? Huh? It's a company. It's a life insurance or insurance company. And Zucker means more or less, of course. Like, of course this person is, has life insurance with Delta Lloyd, the risk that they take. So uh, the uh, seventh principle has to do with, whoops, uh, doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with health, safety, and security and are responsible to provide comprehensive care and uh, packages to help people, including life insurance and things like that. Okay. This one is great to unpack, and this is the one a lot of people might refer to when they think of this code in terms of member care. There's a counterpoint to Stone 2 and to all these things, and I've heard this many, many times. People can actually be offended by this presentation. Not probably anyone here, but this is the reason why. 
uh, Stone 2, and what, how I've described it so far, comprehensive, multiple resources, missionary life cycle, comprehensive, etc. For some centers, these guidelines are idealistic or best inappropriately constrictive at worst. Why? Senders coming from less experienced or financially limited settings may not be in this, on the same page about what is, quote, needed to do mission and aid and member care well. Philosophically, some senders may default to the practice of sending out, quote, naked mission workers who have no apparent resources other than to follow the biblical injunction Christ gave his disciples to go without an extra coat, staff, or money. These folks embody that commitment without an expectation of returning to their home country for furlough or retirement. This may seem extreme, but it does reflect the other end point of the sender's continuum for providing, quote, comprehensive member care. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced this with some of the people that are out there, some of the sending agencies? I basically respect this, but I think there needs to be a blending and an upgrading, definitely, and an informing one another. They provide commitment and example. We provide resources and hopefully blending it together to come up with something which makes sense to everyone. Uh, Yael Danielli, in one of her concluding notes in uh, sharing the front line in Back Hills, she describes how some potential contributors to her edited work on basically member care for humanitarian aid workers and uh, peacekeepers and so forth, dismissed her efforts as preposterous, even obscene. The reason was that she was focusing on the needs of human humanitarian workers, the protectors and the providers, rather than on the far more needy victims. Why are we talking about all this member care stuff? Your ethical duty and responsibility is to sacrifice and focus on the needs of humanity. And so some people are still here. I respect them. I don't necessarily agree with them. OK, stone two, some applications. That's in the article. Stone three, let's jump to the mirror. Ethical rationalizations. Uh, looks at our propensity for excusing and covering up our ethical errors and practice mistakes. These rationalizations can be seen as substandards, sub-meaning inferior or wrong, that we can unfortunately all too easily tolerate or even adopt. This is actually my favorite stone. It's part of a larger process and commitment for both sending groups and member care workers to regularly look into the mirror of our hearts, individually and with others, in order to scrutinize both our motives and the ethical quality of our member care work. Our own capacity for self-deception and self-justifying revisions of our personal and work-related history give cause for much concern. In addition to reviewing the copious amounts of scriptures that expose, expose our prevarication-prone human nature, heart is more deceitful above all else, Jeremiah 79, uh, see also the compelling work of Travis and Aronson, Elliot Aronson, on how we distort reality this book, which came out recently, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts. Anyone have that or read that in social psychology? It's excellent. Okay. Um, we were first, Michelle and I, influenced by something we read by the Board of Psychology back in 1999 in their little newsletter that was based on a book that Pope and Vasquez wrote. And uh, their rationalizations, sub practice principles, so forth. And this is a, a quote. Faced with the complex demands, human costs, constant risk, and often limited resources from our work, we may be tempted to simplify life by changing or overlooking our ethical responsibilities. Not wanting to view ourselves or have others view us as being unethical, we use common fallacies and rationalizations to justify 
our unethical behaviors and quiet a noisy conscience. These attempts to disguise our unethical behaviors might be called ethical substandards, although they are not really ethical. Sending organizations and member care workers would benefit from adding to this list of 10 items and even thinking in terms of our, quote, preferred rationalizations. But beware, we can rationalize our rationalizations with meta-rationalizations. One of the prime examples of a meta-rationalization is the self-serving belief that we do not, in fact, rationalize. Or a corollary meta-rationalization is the belief that even if we do rationalize, we do so for a very ethical and noble reason. So here's the first five as we look in the mirror. It's ethical as long as you don't know a Bible verse law or ethical principle that prohibits it. It's cool. It is ethical, number two, as long as your colleagues or service receivers do not complain about it, or as long as no one else knows or wants to know, or as long as you can convince others that it is okay. Principle three here. It is ethical as long as you or your telecommunications technology were having a bad day, thus affecting your usual quality of work, or as long as the circumstances and decisions were difficult, or as long as you were busy, rushed, or multitasking. It's excusable. Fourth, it is ethical as long as you follow the majority of your ethical guidelines or as long as you only intend to do it one time. Fifth, it is ethical as long as there is no intent to do harm, you are being sincere, your heart is in the right place, and you are trying to do the best that you can. Six, it is ethical as long as you are a moral person or a nice, competent, or respected person or as long as you provide free services. <laughs> It is ethical as long as you, quote, take responsibility for your decision behavior, or as long as you are acting with, quote, integrity, or as long as it does not seem to negatively impact your, your behavior or emotions. Next, it is ethical as long as the matter is not completely black and white, or as long as someone else is also wrong or more wrong than you are, or as long as others do it, or as long as someone in authority over you reassures you or pressures you and asks you to do it. It is eight, nine, it is ethical as long as you believe or feel it is not unethical. And finally, the mother of all rationalizations, drum roll please, what do you think it is? It is ethical as long as you are an important person. Uh, applications, that's in your paper. Stone four, I'll just go through very quickly. This refers to the need to identify a specific code if you can, that is relevant for how you do member care or your area of member care. It could be um, based on your background or context. If you're into human resource development, it could be a human resource code. If you're into coaching, it could be the code by the, is it International Federation of Coaching or Coaches, something like that. So it's trying to identify something that exists, of which there's dozens that, make rele that uh, are relevant for you, whether as an individual, MCW, or as a, um, let me just keep going here, or as a sending group. And there are a couple uh, codes out there for Christian mission sending organizations, not just this one, which is also excellent, but in doing member care well, which is on sale, I think, still. Uh, there's two codes that are in that book for Christian sending organizations I would point you towards. Sorry to be running through this a bit uh, fast. Uh, okay. All right, this is the uh, final point I want to make on stone four. 
and that uh, as we look at, or people we know, fellow member care colleagues, look at the diversity of codes and all this stuff that's been written from different cultures, it can be a bit overwhelming. And so here's a few principles uh, that I find helpful to help people navigate the wealth of information and information overload. And by the way, a good source for helping to shape and write a code is found by the uh, uh, SHR, Society for Human Resource Management and their website, uh, Principles for Developing Codes in Different Contexts, Different Organizational Contexts especially. So uh, here's a few things. First of all, get input. Ask for examples from other member care workers and sending groups about what they are using. Ask around, how have they integrated such codes practically really into their member care uh, work practice and organizational ethos? Don't assume you know a lot or don't assume, con assume conversely that you know too little. Use this article, this thing that I wrote, for example, as a foundation to explore and to interact also. Second, go with the core. Don't worry about developing the definitive encyclopedia on ethics for your organization. Get what you need, focus on the basics, don't try to put on armor that doesn't fit you or your discipline, culture, or organization. Less, initially, is probably better. Third, be realistic and maintain perspective. In the opening comments in the APA Trust book, uh, Assessing and Managing Risk in Psychological Practice, uh, this particular phrase, these principal stunts, stood out to me. Strive for excellence, but don't strive for perfection as you're putting codes together. We're gonna make mistakes, we cannot help everyone, uh, you won't know everything, you can't go it alone. It is helpful to have a proper mix of confidence and humility as we do member care, including as we try to put together relevant guidelines for ethics. Review your guidelines and openly and regularly. Get input from current and former staff about the way staff are managed and supported. Be sure to establish key indicators to help you determine the extent to which you are putting into practice your core ethical principles. And then finally, think in terms of two things, organizational ethos and practitioner mentality. Developing good ethical practice, it is a process. It involves inner shifts, not just behavioral shifts. We think ethically and we act ethically, and each one influences the others. Okay, uh, we go to the third part and very important part of the uh, lecture this afternoon. It has to do with human rights. And uh, to make a long story short, I was in Colorado Springs uh, in March of last year at one of my favorite places in the world, Starbucks, drinking an iced coffee venti, experiencing revelation. As I was looking at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I'm serious, there was something besides caffeine that was flowing through my veins that day, and it was a realization that human rights and human rights terms overlap a lot with member care terms and member care understanding, and that they need to, and that human rights in addition to Christian scripture, in addition to the previous codes and other codes that we've been talking about a bit this afternoon, that human rights is a foundational, uh, it offers a foundational piece, piece, platform for doing member care and understanding ethics. So I'd like to try to demonstrate that or discuss that at least a little bit in the next uh, seven minutes or so. The fifth stone I think is foundational for all the other ones. It deals with what we know is morally right to do. It shines light on our inner sense of duty. I believe that it must especially take into account human rights in a way which hitherto has received minimal consideration in the member care field. This includes understanding and protecting the rights of mission and aid staff, and secondly, understanding and protecting the rights of people with whom they work. 
as described in international human rights documents. The primary focus of this stone is not just on mission and aid staff, however, from my perspective. It's rather on the ethical responsibility, indeed the ethical imperative, for personal and group duty, often sacrificial duty, on behalf of humanity. Where does the member care field need to go? Where does the area of ethics need to go? I believe it's embodied right here. Sacrificial commitment and duty to help humanity, to empower humanity, to alleviate as best as we can some of the woes of humanity. It's about the duty and choice to risk one's own rights and well-being in order to extend member care, broadly speaking, to vulnerable populations. I believe this is the next major step in member care and in, in uh, ethics. More specifically, it's a principled commitment to improve the quality of life and seek justice for those whose human rights, including religious liberties and freedom of conscience, as well as physical safety and economic livelihood, are habitually threatened through neglect, disasters, poverty, discrimination, fear, and persecution, and the list could go on and on. So it's not just about how we support our staff, but perhaps how we support our staff as they support people they provide services to based on ethical sense of duty and human rights principles. I like to refer to stone five as the quote, known stone. It's our moral knowledge and our moral duty that impels us to help others even if it inconveniences us or leads us to difficult consequences. It's just not knowledge-based, however, but also affect-based. So two sides of this thing, uh, the stone five, one is moral knowledge, moral duty, and then an affective component to the sense of moral duty. It involves moral emotions. It makes us groan with pain and compassion, even as all creation groans in futility and brokenness. Thus, we also refer to this stone not only as the known stone, but the grown stone. Uh, I want to do two more things because our time is just about up. One is just a short case study, short example of this grown stone, this known stone. And then I want to actually identify what I believe are five core principles of this stone that you could take away with you. Uh, this is from a Malaysian mission leader that lives in Australia now. I just returned from Sulawesi, Indonesia yesterday, where I met with leaders who oversee about 2,000 church planters, pastors, and evangelists in the Maluku Islands, Indonesia. They have lost about 100 workers in the last several months. Some were burnt alive and others cut to pieces. One evangelist had his head cut off and placed in a public place with his genitals in his mouth. One pastor lost his children and grandchildren. Another pastor was forcibly circumcised along with his children, including his five-year-old girl. I am just so overwhelmed with pain in, my, uh, pain in my heart. As I sat with them, I couldn't bear to listen. But even more painful is what one pastor asked me. Why doesn't anyone care for us? Even now when I read this, something inside stirs, perhaps for you too. It's that known stone, the grown stone. Something is not right. We want to do something. And I'm trying to take a huge step forward in member care, in the ethical realm, to not just look at principles to help us professionally provide good services, but that challenging sense of duty to sacrificially and responsibly take risks in the service of humanity as practitioners and as humans. I need to go to, uh, I'll say something about this, and I'm going to my final five points here. Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I just want to encourage all of you, please, to Google it. It's in a gazillion languages. Read it, study it. There's 30 articles and a short preamble. 
that I think are very, very important. I encourage sending organizations, sending churches to use this as part of their training curriculum. I encourage you to use it in your psychology and uh, marriage and family curriculum as well. And just discuss it, brainstorm, free associate perhaps, how it relates to the type of work that you do ethically in your practice. It's very important, very foundational. 1948 document, 60th year anniversary. Okay, I'm going to finish with this. So, we've talked about, we're talking about five stones. Remember, these stones I mentioned were kind of platonic, represent the ideal. And then the specific principles, specific guidelines that are part of each stone represent the particulars, Aristotelian type, Aristotelian type particulars, which can vary and be adjusted by different organizations, different contexts. But when we talk about this broad area of human rights, Here's five principles, five things that we formulated to help guide us and further clarify what we're really talking about here. Five core principles for human rights and member care. First one, we recognize the dignity and equality of our staff and of the people that are the focus of our services. The pursuit of freedom, justice, and peace are responsibilities that are reflected in our core values and goals. And by the way, a lot of the, the phraseology here comes directly from the Universal De Declaration of Human Rights. Secondly, we promote, friendly, we promote friendly relations, social progress, and better standards of life within our organizations and within the people that are the focus of our services. Three, we are gravely concerned, or the term outraged is used in the preamble of the Universal Declaration, we are gravely concerned when basic rights are disregarded within our organizations and within the people that are the focus of our services. We seek to protect people's rights and we oppose, or the word rebellion is used, we oppose those entities that stifle freedoms of speech and beliefs and the freedom from fear. Fourth of five, the fourth, we reaffirm our ongoing commitment to basic human rights in both our organizations and the people who are the focus of our services. And then finally, we are willing to prudently make sacrifices in order to safeguard and promote the rights and well-being of vulnerable people including mission and aid personnel and the people uh, whom they serve. Well, obviously we could talk about this for more, a lot more than we should, but uh, just by way of summary, I do believe that we can head down a road towards transcultural principles that are relevant for people from a variety of backgrounds. I think we need to. I think we need to further upgrade the ethical quality of care that we provide people, whether we're from the West or from the non-West, North, South, whatever. And I do think we need to uh, get a greater appreciation of what humanity has said about human rights. The consensual validation across nations, across religions, and to appeal to what humans have said about basic human rights, dignity and worth of humans, in addition to scripture, in addition to codes, as we try to do member care well, bring all three together. All right, thank you very much. It's been great to be here with you. Thank you, Kelly, for calling us to ethical practice within the context of our institutions.